in um, uh, First and Second Peter are incredible books, and and what we've been doing is is uh, we've been trying to connect everything from Wednesday night Bible study, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. We're trying to help. Uh, build the foundation for you to have a thriving relationship with God with. Amen. And, um, and so before we jump into the book and, and get into all the fascinating details of this letter, um, we're going to start uh, with verse number one and kind of get an introduction on who wrote the book and who the book was written to. All right. So uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, Mab spoiled you. Some of you don't know what to do right now. Um, if you don't have the Bible app on your phone, um, get it, but not now. Just uh, look over at your neighbor's phone or Bible or iPad or whatever they have. And I'm reading from the ESV translation. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so our, our series is titled Exiles because that is who the Apostle Peter is uh, addressing these letters to. Now, Peter is not just an apostle. There was many apostles, but uh, Peter was kind of the leader of the entire apostolic group. And he was an important and influential man in the early church. And uh, when you consider the author who wrote this book and that it wasn't written to a specific church and it wasn't written to um, a specific following, but it was written to Christians at large, um, you have to understand that when they received this letter, they received it with a great deal of importance because they knew that for Peter to write them a letter addressing the issues that are found in these letters, that this was of utmost importance. Now, some people... Um, have tried to question the legitimacy of, of the book of Peter and 2 Peter, citing that Peter was an unlearned and ignorant fisherman, and there's no way he would be able to write the kind of letters that we find here in the Bible. But uh, it's important for us to understand when the Bible calls them ignorant and unlearned fishermen, it doesn't mean that they were stupid, right? It just means they weren't professional Christians like the Pharisees. It would be equivalent to... Uh, some goofball went to 17 years of seminary uh, questioning a preacher who didn't go to seminary. That's what it was in that day. That's what they were talking about. So it's not that Peter was dumb. Um, Peter had some incredible insight. And what I love about these two books we're going to be talking about is a lot of times um, in today's society, you know, you go to school and you have to write a, a book report. Anybody ever done that? You know, you write, and, and the book report comes because you have to study all this other stuff and compile all the information together. Um, Peter's book is so fascinating because it's not a book report. This is his personal experiences that have been transferred from his relationship with God, and he's, he's giving us insight into who he is as a person and into what we can expect and how we can be overcomers. And, and so it's an incredible book. Now, his name that was given to him was Simon. Uh, but Jesus changed it to Peter, and Peter means a stone. The Aramaic version of Peter is Cephas, and so Peter basically had three names. Um, I wish Brother Nick Beard was here because he has three names. Nicholas Richard Glenn, and I was going to give him a hard time, but he's not here, so he's sick. He picked a good day to have stomach problems. 
And pray for the whole family because the whole family's sick, and you know that's not fun. Thank you, sister. You've got one spiritual person here. The rest of you just laughing. <laughs> Is the live stream down too? We need that to be down as well. Nearly 50 times in the New Testament he is called Simon, often he is called Simon Peter. Um, and these two names are interesting because a lot of times we just read past it and we don't really give much thought to whether it's Simon or Peter. But um, Peter's two names kind of signify a Christian's two natures. Everybody has a Simon and everybody has a Peter. Notice in scripture when Jesus is not happy with Peter, he calls him Simon. When Peter goes fishing in John chapter 21, he calls him Simon. But after Peter receives the revelation and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, You're Peter. Every Christian has an old nature and a new nature. We've been talking about that quite a bit, haven't we? All of us have an old nature and a new nature. And guess what? You don't know which one you're going to wake up with. Oh, no, not me, Pastor. I'm perfect. I'm always holy and spiritual and righteous and liar. <laughs> Can I say that? In the, I don't know. We all have two natures. Every one of us has the pull of the old me trying to pull me back. That's why Peter pulls out a sword and cuts the ear off. That's why Peter just speaks out and says, no, they're not taking you. They're going to take you over my dead body. And then he's running and hiding and crying because they took him. Every one of us has that draw from the old nature. But thank God that there's grace that gives us a new nature. That when I have an experience with him and when I am in relationship with him, I don't have to be Simon. I can be a new creature. Old things can pass away and I can be Peter. The old nature is prone to fail, but the new nature can give us victory. As Simon, he was only another piece of human clay, but as Peter, Jesus made him a rock and said, I'm going to build my church on the rock that is the foundation of the revelation you have. Now, Peter and Paul were the leading apostles in the early church. Paul was assigned to minister to the Gentiles. Peter was assigned to the Jews and um, the Lord commanded Peter to strengthen the brethren in Luke chapter 22 and to tend to the flock in John chapter 21. And the writing of this letter was part of the ministry that Jesus had given Peter. So Peter's job wasn't just to preach the, the, the nice sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter's job was to kind of be the overseer of the early church and to make sure that the brethren had strength and to make sure that he was tending the flock. And so here in this letter, P Peter's going to act kind of like a pastor looking out uh, for the safety of the Christians that he's writing to. Now, in this letter, we'll, we'll also see uh, Silas. Anybody remember Silas? Paul and Silas? Yeah. He's known as Silvanus in this book, but he's talking about Silas. And he was one of the chief men in the early church. He was a, a prophet, the scripture tells us. And uh, he communicated God's messages to congregations as he was delected, uh, directed, not delected. I don't even know what delected means, but he was directed by the Holy Ghost. Um, now, in the early church, the apostles and prophets worked together to build the foundation of the church. And, and Silas uh, was a part of that foundation. And it is believed that Silas is actually the one who carried the letters with him. 
and delivered them to these different provinces uh, that are listed here in the first verse. Um, and many scholars believe that he was actually the secretary who wrote the letter. Um, in case you didn't know, a lot of times they had somebody transcribe the letters as they gave it orally. Paul had a hard time writing letters with both of his hands bound in prison. So somebody else usually wrote the letter for them. Now, it's interesting that Silas is associated with Peter's ministry because originally Silas was the man chosen by Paul as a replacement for Barnabas after their falling out over John Mark. John Mark in 1 Peter 5.13 is mentioned, and his failure on the mission field caused the rupture between Paul and Barnabas, but it was Peter, believe it or not, that was the one who led John Mark to Christ. Uh, Peter would reference him as his son. And so he maintained concern for him, and uh, Paul would eventually forgive him, and, and Mark would become a valuable helper in him, but you see kind of the the, the interweaving of ministries that was happening here in the early church. Now, in this letter, Peter's going to say that he's writing from Babylon. Has anybody ever read that and thought, what's Peter doing in Babylon? Okay, another one. <laughs> he said he's writing from Babylon, and in Babylon there is an a assembly of believers. But there's no, tra no tradition, there's no history that says that Peter ministered in ancient Babylon. Now, there was another town called Babylon in Egypt, but we have no proof that Peter ever visited that. Um, Babylon is probably another name for the city of Rome. And we have reason to believe that Peter ministered at Rome and was probably martyred there. In fact, Rome is called Babylon twice in Revelation 17.5 and Revelation 18.10. And it was not unusual for persecuted believers during these days to write or speak in code. So most likely, Peter is writing um, from Rome. Now, Peter calls the people he's writing to exiles. Somebody say exiles. 1 Peter 1 and 1, it says strangers. Look at your neighbor and say stranger. Some of y'all took a lot of joy in that. A lot of echo after stranger. Now, the word exile here literally means stranger, resident alien, or sojourner. They're called sojourners and exiles, and the King James says strangers and pilgrims. That's probably a term you're familiar with. In 1 Peter 2 and 11, these people were citizens of heaven through faith in Christ, and therefore were not permanent residents on earth like Abraham. They had their eyes of faith centered on a future city of God. They were in the world, but they were not of the world. Now, the idea behind the word exile is of someone who lives as a temporary resident in a foreign land. Exiles are travelers and live in constant awareness of their true home. In the early Christian writing, known as the Epistle to Diognetus, he gives the idea of what an exile is. Quote, they inhabit the land of their birth, but as temporary residents of it. They take their share of all responsibilities as citizens and endure all disabilities as aliens. Every foreign land is their native land, and every native land a foreign land. They pass their days upon earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. Somebody point to yourself. We're going to have, do I need to get some participation ribbons and pass them out? Everybody point to yourself. Let's make sure we're all awake and, 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 and here together. Say, I am an exile. I don't live here. You realize that this world is not our home. 
and that 90% of the stress and frustration that we live with is because all of our focus is on our temporary dwelling place, not on our eternal home. The reason the early church was able to endure the things they endured and and thrive in, in spite of the persecution that was being levied against them, the reason they were able to look death in the face and, 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 and not waver, the reason Stephen with stones flying at him could still say, I see uh, Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The reason they could do that is because they knew who they were. I don't belong here. I live here now, but what I'm doing is just passing through. I'm just a pilgrim on a journey because like Abraham, I'm looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. Come on, does anybody believe that? I'm not going to get wrapped up in the things of this world because I know that this world's going to pass away. The Bible says uh, life is like a vapor. It's here for a second and it's gone. And we spend so much time and energy trying to get the best out of this world while we neglect our true home, which is heaven. Now, here's the thing about strangers. Strangers are strange to the citizens of the land they're living in. Strangers are strange. Take somebody from another culture. Sister Debbie, when you first moved here, everybody was strange, huh? She still thinks we're strange. That's all right, we think she's strange too. Go to a different country, to a different culture, different way of life. And you will be strange to them. Well, guess what? Why are you strange to them? It's because you have a different moral compass. Because in other countries, things are perceived differently. You have a, a different mindset because you weren't raised around that culture and that way of living and that way of thinking. The same thing happens here on earth. When you're born again, the Bible says he will give you the desires of your heart. No, it's not a Cadillac. He will take godly desires and he will implant them into your heart. You think differently. That is why Paul said, let this mind that was in Christ be in you also. And the reason why we are strange to the people of this world is because they don't understand where we come from. And so they can't comprehend why we aren't involved and entangled in the same vices that they are. And so the reason why there's this push from from the liberal media and Hollywood and everybody trying to force their ideologies on everyone to be the same, it's because in their mind they can't understand why we aren't like them. But the reason we're not like them is because we have been born again. We are no longer citizens of this planet, but our citizenship has been transferred into heaven. Now, even in, in verse 4 of 1 Peter, he says, the world doesn't understand why you don't join in their sin. Has anybody ever been there? I've been at work before and, 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 and had people ask me, what's wrong with you? Has anybody ever been asked that? I literally had, what's wrong with you? I, I told a comical story Wednesday night Bible study, I won't tell it again, but 
I've had to throw my head out windows of a Pepsi truck going down the highway. They, they don't understand. And even when you say, man, listen, I'm a Christian. I, I can't. It doesn't compute. One guy actually told me, I, I know you're a Christian, but you're still a man, right? It doesn't make sense. The reason it doesn't make sense is because we have standards and values different from those of this world. And although it's beautiful and it gives us an opportunity of witness, it also creates opportunities for warfare. And we're going to discover in this epistle that some of these readers are experiencing sufferings simply because they live a different life than everyone else. Does that sound familiar? I hope you leave here today and you're like, oh, you know what, it makes sense. I'm an exile. I'm not a citizen of this world. That's why I don't get along with people on my job. And that's why everyone thinks I'm weird. You might be weird. But just say, I'm an exile. Okay? That's how I get through my days. Now, these believers were not just strangers. They were scattered strangers. They had been forced out of their comfortable lifestyles. And they were exiles in a physical sense. And they were exiles in a spiritual sense. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia were specific areas where Christianity had extended in the first several decades after the beginning of church. And it was probably the route that Silas took these letters um, uh, and distributed this letter among the different congregations. Um, because this letter was not written to one church, it was written to all Christians, and that applies to us. They said, I said, that's me. Now, the important thing for us to know about these scattered strangers, these exiles, is that they were going through a time of suffering and persecution. And at least 15 times in this letter, Peter refers to suffering, and he will use eight different Greek words to do so. He's really trying to emphasize this. Now, some of these Christians are suffering because they are living godly lives and trying to do what's right. Others are suffering reproach for the name of Christ and being railed at by unsaved people. And so Peter wrote to encourage them to be good witnesses to their persecutors. Yeah, I, I know they're treating you bad, but make sure you treat them good. And then he also wrote to them to encourage them to remember their suffering leads to something called glory. Someone say glory. Peter had another purpose in mind. He knew that a fiery trial was about to begin. Official persecution from the Roman Empire was about to be handed down. Now, when the church first began, uh, they were just looked at as a, uh, another sect of the Jewish religion. They were just a Jewish church. Um, the first Christians were Jews. They met in temple precincts, and so it was easy for the Roman government to just overlook them. But when it became clear that Christianity was no longer a sect of Judaism, Rome stepped in and took official action. Several events occurred to help precipitate this fiery trial. Paul defended his Christian faith before the official court in Rome in Philippians chapter 1. He was released but then arrested again and the second defense failed and he was eventually martyred. Nero blamed the fire of Rome on Christians using them as a scapegoat. Peter was probably in Rome at the time and was slain by Nero who had also killed Paul. Nero's persecutions of Christians was local at first, but it began to spread. And Peter was writing to warn and prepare the churches. As Nero began to introduce official persecution of the church, other emperors followed his example in later years. Now, the book of 1 Peter is a letter of encouragement to these suffering saints. And we have noted the theme of suffering runs through the letter, but also 
along with suffering, is another theme that we're going to hear over and over again. Can anybody guess what that is? Glory. Someone say glory. One of the encouragements that Peter gives these suffering saints is the assurance that their suffering will one day be transformed into glory. Somebody say the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the what? To the glory that shall be revealed in us. Now this is possible only because our Savior suffered for us and entered into his glory. And the sufferings of Christ are mentioned often in this letter. Peter is the apostle of hope. Paul is the apostle of faith. John is the apostle of love. But Peter is the apostle of hope. And as believers, we have a living hope. Somebody say living hope because we serve a living Savior. Aren't you glad about that? This hope enables us to keep our minds under control. Somebody say amen to that. And hope to the end when Jesus shall return. We must not be ashamed of our hope. We must be able to defend and explain our hope, Peter tells us. And since suffering brings glory, and because Jesus is coming back again, Paul's, uh, Peter rather, is letting them know we can indeed be hopeful. That's hard in the middle of a trial and persecution. It's hard when everything's going wrong in your world. But Peter said, because we serve a living Savior, we have a living hope. And so death can be working outside, Paul said in Acts, but life can be working inside. And even when the world thinks I have no reason to hope, I have a living hope. Thank you. Who said that? I like that. Now, the word grace is used in every chapter of 1 Peter. Isn't that amazing? Paul weaves in grace. God's grace is God's generous favor to undeserving sinners and needy saints. And when we depend on God's grace, we can endure suffering and turn trials into triumphs. That's why when Paul said, I besought the Lord three times because of this thorn in the flesh, what did God say? My grace is sufficient. How is his grace sufficient? Because when I depend on his grace, I get living hope. And his grace actually empowers me to live above the suffering. And through grace, he can turn my trials into triumphs. Now, grace alone saves us, according to Ephesians chapter 2. God's grace gives us strength in times of trials in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God's grace enables us to serve God in spite of difficulties, Psalms 84 and 1 Peter 5.10. And as we study 1 Peter, we will see how the three themes of suffering, grace, and glory unite to form an encouraging message for believers experiencing times of trials and persecution. The themes are summarized in 1 Peter 5 and 10. After you have suffered a little while, somebody say a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, uh, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I want to say that again. After you have suffered a little while, somebody say a little while. 
I know right now it feels like you've been living in perpetual state of frustration. And, and it feels like every time you've opened the door, there's been more trouble waiting for you. But the Bible says our suffering is for a little while. In other words, it is designed of God to only last a season. We were not created to live in constant turmoil and in constant chaos. But there are seasons of trials. But after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to live in his eternal glory will restore, somebody say restoration, will confirm, will strengthen and establish you. I wish you could get what I'm trying to preach to you today. A true Christian hope is more than just I hope so. The world is full of people who are turning to alcohol and drugs and all kinds of devious lifestyles uh, because they're living by a hope so. I hope one day my life will get better. I hope one day my marriage will work. I hope one day I, I can pay my bills. I, I hope so when somebody says you can have happiness and joy and peace of mind. They live off of a hope so. But because we have a living hope, we don't live by a hope so. We have a confident assurance of heaven and we've got a confident assurance that the God of all grace can restore, confirm, and establish. And this hope, this confident hope, gives us the encouragement and enablement we need for daily living. Maybe if you're young and you've never experienced life yet, you don't understand what I'm talking about, but I'm talking about when you're going through the dog, dog days of life and, and everything is going wrong in your world and you wonder why you even have a reason to get up in the morning. Uh, this hope uh, will encourage you uh, and enable you uh, to keep going forward uh, when everyone else will fail. That's what hope is. An Old Testament believer called God the hope of Israel. A New Testament believer affirms that Christ is his hope. An unsaved sinner, Ephesians 2.12 says, is without hope. But we have a living hope. Now this hope does not put us in a rocking chair where we put our feet up and just get comfortable and say, well, one day God's coming back and I got hope he's going to take me with him. This hope puts us out on the battlefield where the burdens are heavy and the battles are hard. It's not a sedative to just meander through life. It is a shot of adrenaline to live above the trouble. It is a blood transfusion. It is an anchor. Our hope in Christ stabilizes us when the storms are trying to blow us around. But unlike an anchor, it doesn't just pull us back. It helps to move us forward. I thank God I have living hope. Now, it's not difficult to follow Peter's train of thought when you begin to read this letter. Everything begins with salvation. Somebody say salvation. salvation. And in this term, salvation is talking about our relationship to God. If we know Christ as our Savior, then we have hope. Our relationship with God is the foundation of our hope in this world. We may not have everything we want. 
And as exiles, we may face suffering and persecution from the world we are living in. But if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. We might be exiles, but as long as I stay connected to him, I know that Christ in me is the hope of glory. So Peter gives us four incredible discoveries about this glory of God. The first one is Christians are born for glory. Somebody say, I'm born for it. Because of the death and resurrection of Christ, believers have been born again. Somebody say, thank God for that. But we've been born again to a living hope. And that hope includes the glory of God. So what does the glory of God mean? The glory of God means the sum total of all that God is and does. I'll say that again so it'll register in your mind. The glory of God is the sum total of all that God is and all that God does. Glory is not an attribute or a characteristic of God. Holiness, wisdom, and mercy are attributes and characteristics of God. He is glorious in wisdom and power. So everything he thinks and does is marked by glory. He reveals his glory in creation, the psalmist said. He reveals his glory in dealings with the people of God and with his plan for salvation of lost sinners. Everything God does reveals his glory. When we were first born, we were not born for glory. 1 Peter 1.24 says, all flesh is like grass and the glory of a man is like the flower of the grass. It's just gone. The glory, the feeble glory of man will always fade and disappear, but the glory of God is eternal. The works done for man will not last, but the works done for the glory of God will last and be rewarded. Selfish human achievements of sinners will one day vanish to be seen no more. And one reason we have encyclopedias is so that we can learn about famous people we've forgotten about. So Peter gives two descriptions to help us understand more about this glory. The first one, he describes the Christian's birth. In verse number 2 of 1 Peter 1, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. The miracle all began with God. Somebody say, I was chosen by God. You were not an accident. You didn't stumble into the church. You're not here just because your parents went to church. You are here because God, in his foreknowledge, chose you to be here. Now, this election was not based on anything you did. Peter said, you're the elect. Somebody said, I'm the elect. I may be in exile, but I'm an elect exile. But it's not based on you. It's not because you were good. It's not because you were great. It's not because God said, you know what, if I save... Jordan, he's going to do great things for me. That's not even why you were chosen. And foreknowledge does not mean that God already knew ahead of time that you would believe and that you would follow him. To foreknow means to set one's love on a person or persons in a personal way. It's used in Amos chapter 3, verse number 2, when he said, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God set his electing love on the nation of Israel, and now that elected love is on his church. In verse 3, it said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. Somebody say born again. 
to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The second thing he describes is a Christian's hope. We are born again to a living hope. It's a living hope because it's grounded on the living word of God. This is why you, you need to read your Bible. This is why you need to come to Wednesday night Bible study. Because the word of God is alive. Yes. Hebrews 4 and 12. It's sharp and powerful, quicker than it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints of morrow. Another translation says, the word of God is alive. It never stops moving. Why did the sun come up today? Because all the way back in creation, God spoke and said, let there be light. And that word continues to go forward. It is a continuing action. God's word never dies. And I have living hope because I have living word that was given by a living God who arose from the dead. A living hope is one that has life in it. And therefore, it can give to us life when we need it. Verse 4 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable. Somebody say it can't perish. It is undefiled, it is unfading, and it is kept in heaven for you. It's waiting for you. Everything you're going through, God is storing away glory in heaven. There's, there's a whole storage locker of glory that's got your name on it that he said, I've got it stored just for you. I'm waiting for you to get here because when you get here, I'm going to reveal everything you had to go through, all the trials and heartache and turmoil. It's not going to be for nothing because there is glory and it is kept in heaven for you. Peter called this hope our inheritance. As children of the king, we share in the inheritance in glory. We are included in Christ's last will and testament, and we share the glory with him. God wanted us to have this glory so much that the Bible says he gave us the earnest of our inheritance, which is the Holy Ghost. When he fills you with his spirit and you begin to speak in an unknown language, God is making a down payment of glory for you I don't care how powerful of a service you've been in where you've fallen out and blacked out in the power of the glory of God it ain't nothing that's just the down payment of what God has restored for you he's got kept in heaven for you an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading now this inheritance in 1 Peter 1 and 5 and verse 9 is called salvation somebody say salvation we understand that the believer is saved through faith in Christ. But that doesn't just mean you accept Christ as your Savior and boom, you're saved. Hebrews 4 and 2 says the word was powerless to them. Why? Because it was not mixed with faith in them that received it. So to have faith in something means to act on something, right? Sister Debbie, you just jumped out of an airplane. I don't know why you did it, uh, but she did. She paid money to climb into a good airplane and jump out. But when you jumped out, you had faith that the guy you were strapped to had a good parachute. And she acted on her faith by jumping out of the plane. Because if I'm in a plane and there's some doubt about whether or not that parachute's going to open, Josh is going to go sit with the pilot. I'll see y'all when we get back. 
But because you have faith in something, you act on something. Every one of you came in here and had faith the chair was going to hold you. You didn't check the... You just came and plopped down. You acted on faith. So if I say I have faith in God and I'm saved through faith, that doesn't just mean I'm like, yep, I'm, I'm saved. You have to act on your faith. What does that mean? How does that work? Salvation is a free gift. I can't earn it. You'll never be good enough to earn salvation. That's why the Pharisees, Jesus was so angry with them. You think all the stuff you do on the outside is going to get you saved? Inside you're full of dead men's bones. I'm saved by grace through faith, but my faith requires action. So by faith, I pray a prayer of repentance, believing that God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins. My faith pushes me to step into a baptistry where I'm buried with him in Jesus' name in baptism, believing that he will wash away all of my sins. And by faith, I am filled with the Spirit, and I yield my body to him so that he can speak through me in an unknown language through the supernatural infilling of the Holy Ghost. Salvation is a miracle, and it is a free gift to anyone who will exercise their faith. But here's the thing about salvation. The completion of salvation is not final until Jesus comes back for his church. Then we will have new bodies and we will go home into a new environment in our heavenly city. First Peter 1 and 7, he uh, called this hope the appearing of Jesus Christ. Paul called it uh, this blessed hope. Uh, what a thrill it is for God's people to know uh, that this is not all there is to God, uh, but there is a blessed hope uh, when Jesus comes back for his church. Here's the second discovery. Christians are kept for glory. Verse 5 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's talking about the coming back when he comes back for his church. The promise of our inheritance is certain because we are kept by the power of God. Somebody say, I am guarded through faith by the power of God. Let that sink into your mind. This enables us to endure through faith until Jesus does return. We are kept by the power of God, but it is through faith, meaning our faith. A person who is kept is a person who is abiding in a continual relationship of faith with God. We could say that faith activates the preserving power of God in the life of a Christian. So I can't just sit on the back row and expect God to keep me, but as long as I am in continual relationship with him, as long as I am faithful, as long as I talk to him, as long as I read his word, there is grace that will preserve me and power that will protect me. He's guarding us through our faith. That's our relationship with him, and it leads us to our third discovery. Christians are being prepared for glory. Somebody say prepared. This is the part where it's not fun. Verse 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, somebody say it again, a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter used the word trials 
rather than tribulation or persecutions because he was dealing with a general problem the Christian faces as they are surrounded by unbelievers. And there are several facts about trials that he shares. Number one, trials meet needs. The phrase, if necessary, indicates that there are special times when God knows, listen to me, we must go through trials. No, pastor, I don't believe that. He said, listen, if, if necessary, you will be grieved by various trials. Sometimes trials come to discipline our disobedience, but other times trials come to help us grow spiritually. And sometimes trials come to prevent us from sinning. We don't always know the need that's being met, but we can trust in God that God knows what he's doing. The second fact is that trials are varied. Someone say varied. It doesn't matter if you're having a blue Monday or a great Tuesday. Everybody's going to have a trial. But God's grace is sufficient to meet our needs. Number three, trials are not easy. Everyone can say amen to that. Peter did not suggest that we take a careless attitude towards trials. Because this would be deceitful. Trials produce what the King James Bible calls heaviness. I like that word because when you're going through stuff, it just, you just have this heaviness on you. There's just a weight on your shoulder. Anybody ever been there? That word means to experience grief or pain. It is used to describe the Lord in Gethsemane and the sorrow of saints at the death of loved ones. It's a, an impactful word. To deny that our trials are painful is to make them worse. It does no good to come to church and smile and pretend like everything's okay when you're going through the trial of your life. Christians must accept the fact that these experiences are difficult. But number four, trials are controlled by God. They do not last forever. They are for a little while. One writer said this, quote, when God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps his eye on the clock and his hand on the thermostat. The important thing we need to learn is that God wants to teach us, and that God wants to teach us, is that we bring glory to him alone. Peter, Peter illustrated this truth by referring to the goldsmith. No goldsmith would waste the precious materials that he was working with. He puts it into the uh, furnace long enough to remove the cheap impurities. And he would pour it out and make, it from a, uh, make from it a beautiful article of value. It's been said that the eastern goldsmith kept the metal in the furnace until he could see his own reflection in the metal. So God keeps us in the furnace of suffering until we reflect the glory and beauty of Christ. The important thing is, is that this glory is not fully revealed until Jesus returns for his church. So there's going to be a lot of things we don't understand. And we have to be okay with that. We have to be okay saying, you know what? Some things I'll just know later. When we see him, we will bring praise and honor and glory to him if we have been faithful in the sufferings of life. Now, Job went through many trials, all of them with God's approval. And yet he understood this truth about the refiner's fire because in Job 23 and 10, he said, he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. And that he did. 
And number four, the fourth discovery of glory. Christians can enjoy the glory now. Somebody say now. Verse 8 through 12. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but they were serving you. And the things that, you, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look into. Here's the thing we have to remember. Christianity is not about life after death. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is about life instead of death. Somebody say instead of death. And Peter gives us four directions for enjoying this now present glory even in the midst of trials. Number one, love God. Our love for Christ is not based on physical sight because we have not seen him. It is based on our spiritual relationship with him and what the word has taught us about him. Again, this is why Bible study and Bible reading is so important. Peter knew that though he had seen Jesus both before and after his resurrection, most Christians would not get to see Jesus. Nevertheless, they loved him. Now, here's the thing. Satan wants to use our trials to bring out the worst in us. But God wants to use those same trials to bring out the best in us. Which brings us to number two, trust Christ. We must live by faith and not by sight. An elderly lady fell and broke her leg while attending a summer Bible conference. She said to her pastor who was visiting I know the Lord led me to the conference, but I don't see why this had to happen, and I don't see any good coming from it. To which the pastor wisely responds, Romans 8.28 doesn't say that we see all things working together for good. It says we know it. Faith means surrendering all to God and obeying his word in spite of the consequences and circumstances surrounding us. Love and faith go together. When you love someone, you trust that someone. And faith and love together helps to strengthen our hope for where you find faith and love, you will find confidence for the future. So how do we grow in faith during times of testing and suffering? The same way we grow in faith when same things seem to be going well. Feeding on the word of God. Our fellowship with Christ through his word will not only strengthen our faith, but it also deepens our love. It is a basic principle of Christian living that we spend much time in the word when God is testing us and Satan is tempting us. Number three, rejoice in Christ. You may not be able to rejoice over circumstances, but you can rejoice in them by centering your heart and mind on Christ. Each experience of trial helps us learn something new and wonderful about our Savior. Abraham learned a part of God he didn't know until he led his son up the mountain. The three Hebrew boys learned about God, something they would never have learned until they were led to the fiery furnace. And Paul got a revelation of grace he had never before understood until he suffered with a thorn in the flesh. But notice, the joy that this produces is unspeakable and full of glory. This is the only time this expression is used in the entire New Testament. 
This joy is so deep and so wonderful and so profound that it is beyond the power of words to express it. Peter had seen the glory of God on the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus discussed with Moses and Elijah the, the coming suffering and death. And Peter would write to the church in these letters, it was because of that glory that gave him confidence in the words that the prophet spoke. And number four, receive from Christ. Believing and receiving is God's way of meeting our needs. If we love him, trust him, and rejoice in him, then we can receive from him all that we need to turn our trials into triumphs. Peter talks about the Old Testament writers who desired insight into this mystery. They saw the sufferings of Messiah, and they saw the glory that would follow, but they could not understand the connection between the two. When Jesus came to earth, the Jewish teachers were awaiting a conquering Messiah who would defeat Israel's enemies and establish a glorious kingdom promised to David, his own disciples didn't even understand his need for death on the cross. They were even still inquiring about this Jewish kingdom even after his resurrection. Between the suffering of Messiah and his return in glory comes what we call the age of the church. And the truth about that church was hidden in the Old Testament period. The Old Testament believers looked ahead by faith and saw, as it were, two mountain peaks. Mount Calvary, where Christ would die, and Mount Olivet, where Christ would return. But they could not see the valley in between which is the age you and I live in. It was a mystery to them, but it has been revealed to us. And because we know the who and the when of these Old Testament prophecies, we, like Peter, should have confidence in his word. Peter is giving a beautiful juxtaposition of glory and suffering. When you are in a trial, when you are sick and don't have the healing that you need, when you are lost and can't find the answers that you need, when you are struggling to get through life and don't understand what's going on around you. There are two forces at work in your life. On one hand, God is trying to work in you a far exceeding work of glory. It may not be good, it may not seem good, and it may not even feel good, but it will work together for good. If you continue to love him, trust him, rejoice in him, and receive from him the grace you need to go through that. But on the other hand, Satan is at work as well. And he's trying to get you to question God, to question his methods, to question his motives, and before long, question his message. How you respond to the trials of life determines what you experience. Joy unspeakable and full of glory, or bitterness and confusion. Notice, it's not at the end of our faith or heaven when we receive unspeakable joy. Peter said, it's when you can't see him. Somebody needs to hear this. When you can't see him, yet still believe him. He said, though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And because you believe in him, when you can't see him, you will rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and it is filled with glory. Job said, I can't see him but I trust him Moses in the back of that cave said I can't see you but I believe in you some of you have been going through trials 
And some of you have been facing situations, and Brother Tom, I know you're dead, slap dead in the middle of a trial, and you, you've, there's been times you've questioned God, and God, what are you doing? And we've prayed, and we've believed, and but there is glory that's going to be revealed. And I have watched this man at the hospital room. I've watched that woman in the hospital room continue to believe in God even when they don't see him. And it is through that kind of faith. Oh, all my, answer, all my questions get answered. No. Oh, I get everything I've ever prayed for. No. You get a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. When Job couldn't see God, and when Job was in the middle of his toughest trial, he was closer to God than he'd ever been in his life. And when Moses was tucked in that rock on the side of a mountain and the hand of God was covering him and it was so dark he couldn't see the hand in front of his face, Moses was closer to God than he would ever be in his life. And so I came with a word of encouragement to somebody. Even though you don't see him right now, have faith and believe him because God wants to give you joy that can't be explained. I'm talking about a kind of joy when the doctors come in the hospital room, Brother Tom, they say, why are you smiling so big? I can't explain the joy that God gives me. But even though I don't understand what I'm going through, and even though it's hard, and even though the trials seem to be intensifying, even though it seems like I don't have an answer for everything that's happening, and I can't see what God is doing, I've got confidence that it will all work together for my good. And so even though I don't see him, I believe him. Some of you have had promises from God that you've forgotten about. You just tucked it away and said, you know what? That was 15, 20 years ago. It's never going to happen. I feel the Holy Ghost right now. But God is trying to encourage you that though it has not come to pass just yet, your living hope is connected to his living word. And though you can't see him, you can believe in him. And he can give you a joy that is inexpressible. He can give you something. You can receive a miracle just because you believe in his word. Come on, some of you have checked out already, but the Holy Ghost is here right now. And the Holy Ghost wants to minister to somebody. And this is not by accident that God led us here to this series today. And it's not by accident you walked into this church building today. And we're talking about trials and joy in spite of trials. God is trying to help somebody get through these doldrums of life. It's weighing you down. It's beating on your mind. You can't sleep at night. It's not because God's not real. It's because you've lost your confidence in his word but today you can reconnect with a living hope that will empower you to get up in the morning and live a life that brings glory and honor to God music come I want us to stand right now and lift our hands as high as we can just for a moment
We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to experience glory and joy unspeakable. We don't have to wait till we get to heaven to enjoy the benefits of a resurrected life. We can experience it now. Even in our trials, we can make up our minds that our relationship with him will not be moved. That I will trust him even though I can't see him. That I will rejoice in everything that happens, good or bad, because I've got confidence that God is working everything together for my good. And because I can do those three things. I can receive from him joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. I wish I could take what I feel right now and pour it on your head. But somebody needs to get reconnected to that hope this morning. The restaurant will be here in just a moment, but, but you need to take this opportunity. Lay down that heavy burden of, that the trials has put upon you uh, and the frustrations uh, and the stress. Uh, you're not going to figure it out. Uh, you're not going to make sense of everything, uh, but you can turn it over to God uh, and say, God, uh, my relationship with you is all that matters. Uh, God, uh, I'll continue to trust you uh, even though I don't see you. Uh, God, uh, I'll continue to believe in your word. And I can't promise you that you're going to get the healing you desire. I can't promise you that 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 need that's been longing in your mind will be answered today. But I can promise you that he can remove the heaviness from off of your spirit. And I can promise you that he can give you a living hope that will empower you like you've never felt before. And that you can leave this place with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That I can promise you. I want her to sing this song, and I want you to lift your hands, close your eyes. No one's looking around.